And now I invite you to open up in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15. And we will pray after the reading of God's word. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. For if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. We come before your presence today as a congregation. We are thankful, God, for the salvation we have in Christ. We know of the saving merits of his blood, and it is on that basis that we come into your presence. We don't come because we're good. We don't come because we've done acceptable things as society judges them. But we come because Christ lived a righteous and holy life and died the perfect lamb on the cross. Work in our hearts that we might be sanctified, guided in the truth, brought closer to the plan for our lives as we have communion with you, your word, and your church. We're grateful, God, that we can celebrate the resurrection every Sunday morning and that we can be those who come in newness of life with a new purpose, a desire to live for you. Help us in that area this morning as we consider it from this text. And may we grow both in enthusiasm and knowledge that we may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. When I wake up in the morning, it's often feeling like I'm not a saved man. Now, I have assurance of salvation. I believe I'm a saved man. I trust in Jesus, and that leads to assurance. And I find, however, when I wake up, I've got to discover that all over again. I want to live for myself when I wake, not live for Christ. And many times, wanting to live for myself means just going back to sleep rather than rising early for prayer, rather than rising to work for the Lord. When I wake up in the morning, it's often a self-centered suffering that I see in the mirror in the bathroom. I'm ashamed to tell you this. I'm not doing it for shock value. Instead, I do it from the experience that when people have been honest with me about their worst moments, that it has helped me sometimes when I see their journey out of this bad place by faith to a place 
of loving God and serving God. Because I have found that the accusations of the devil come against me when I'm feeling weak. And the accusation of the devil is that when I'm not feeling like a believer when I wake up, well, I might as well give in to sin now. Why bother fighting it if three hours from now I'm going to give in anyway? So there's no hope. But at times like that, we need verses like this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We need motivation to believe verses such as that. That there is a way out, that our situation is not unique, and that with other believers, we have an ongoing journey of building faith and being sanctified. I want to ask you, as you consider the last verse which I read, and these words, that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 15, are you living for Jesus? Are you living for the one who died for you and then rose from the grave? I want to ask you that. I want to ask you it from the point of view of, are you motivated to serve the Lord? And live for him based on the truth found in verse number 11. I call that the front axle of our motivation. That we living in the fact that out of verse 10 we are going to face a final judgment. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Paul goes on to say in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We persuade men. Are you motivated by fear of the Lord? Verses 11 and 12. And also what I'm going to call the back axle of the car of our faith. Are you motivated by the truth of verses 13 and 14? For the love of Christ compels us. Are you motivated by God's love to love one another and to love a lost and dying world so loved by God? And third, do you know the engine of this car of faith? Do you know the engine which makes it go, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Verse 15. Are you living for the Lord? Let's be motivated to live for him. And consider in verses 11 and 12, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, why do I start with the fear of the Lord rather than the love of the Lord? Why do I start with the fear of the Lord and make that the front axle of my car where the steering action is included? Well, first, that's where Paul starts. He mentions the fear of the Lord, verse 11, before he mentions the love of Christ, verse 14. This 
fear, it's translated here, terror is a very strong word. It's phobos from which we get our English word phobia. It's true. We are believers here. We are those who don't await the second coming of Christ as others who have no hope. We don't stand in the presence of an awesome, fear-inducing God as those who have no salvation. We are in relationship with the God of the universe, encountering in faith our loving Heavenly Father. But don't you think Paul knew that also? Wasn't Paul a saved man? Didn't he have a loving Heavenly Father? Didn't he know of a Savior who loved him and gave himself for us? And yet, he says, I am aware of the terror of the Lord, and I choose to be motivated by that. I want you to know that we cannot dumb down the Bible. We cannot reduce every motivation to a little phrase. There are those in our denomination, I'll call them the grace boys, who would say that any motivation to do something based on the fear of the Lord is sub-gospel, that it does not acknowledge the loving presence of God in our life. But Paul is concerned that he would live in such a way that he and others would know Christ based on the fact that a second coming is coming. This word phobos is used elsewhere in the Bible in the face of the supernatural, Matthew 14, 26. The disciples were, saw Jesus walking on the sea and they were filled with fear. We are in the presence of a supernatural God. And in the face of the glorious, radiant, breathtaking glory of God in the birth of Jesus Christ, the angels came and sang, and the angels brought those shepherds to be sore afraid. And in the face of Jesus, who had power over the evil spirits, they were filled with great fear, the people, and said, I don't care if you're getting people well around here. Get out of here, please. Go back. Go away. Depart from us. And isn't that weird? When something as good is happening to someone we know, when life is beginning to turn around and they're delivered from demons or they're delivered from sin, yet if it brings us in touch with the living God, that intimidates us. And that makes us feel as if we are in dangerous ground in the presence of the living God. We need to face the fact that Paul was inspired by God to tell us his personal experience of fearing God as a legitimate Christian motivation. The second reason I put the fear of the Lord at the beginning and in the front axle of my car of faith, is it's where the Bible starts in general. It says in Proverbs 9 and 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where we have to start. 
If we're going to gain wisdom, not only for everyday living, but wisdom for salvation, we have got to get our head around the fact that God is other than us, that God is sovereign and good and righteous and holy. And it does no good to talk about a loving and a forgiving God if we don't know already that he is a God who will not put up with sin. There's no use going forward to the mechanic and finding out how we can be fixed unless we know what the problem is. God is meant to be honored, respected, and worshipped. This is the beginning of our walk of faith, that we come face to face with the living God. And we can develop a sentimentalized version of God's love that we just pour into whatever conception of God we have. We don't necessarily have to have the God of the Bible to be thinking about a loving God. That's what everybody thinks God is like. But it is when God, the living God of the Bible, connects with us by means of the death and resurrection that we are revealed to us the true sacrificial love which changes our life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the third reason that I make the fear of the Lord the front axle of the car of my faith is, it, is that word that we see there in 5 verse 11, knowing, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing means to understand, to stare at something. It's right in your face. And because I stand in awe of the Lord, I am in awe of him because something I know. Now, there are lots of things we go by, our feelings. We go by our feelings when we feel trapped, when we feel cornered, when we feel alone when we feel desperate. But at moments of temptation, we need a mind that has been transformed to know the living God. We need what is called in the New Testament repentance, which is the word metanoia. Meta means new. Noia is a new knowledge, a new way of thinking. It is a new way of thinking that transforms the whole of our life. It is knowing that the creator with whom we have to do is sovereign, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And when we see that that is the God whom we are dealing with and our steering is aligned in relationship with that God, then we see that we can't dismiss the message of motivation according to a final judgment. And the Apostle Paul even says here in verse 12, his response to this knowledge of a sovereign God, his response is humility. Verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves again 
to you. I'm not going to commend myself. I'm not going to boast about myself. My front axle spins toward the Lord when I bow in humility before his holiness. And so I need to start each morning with the need for humility before God in my heart and on my lips. In Philippians 2.4, it says that each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. The way that God teaches humility to him is he says, show it to the people around you. Humble yourself before me in worship and declare it in your prayers, but go out and live it in how you treat others. Verse 4 of Philippians 2, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility before my wife, humility before the session, humility before my church family, humility before my fellow believers in other churches. That's why I find it very important for me to have relationships with other churches through friendships with pastors in this area, one of which, some of which we're going to experience as a session going to Gospel Advance on Saturday in Clifton Park. We are humbling ourselves as a group before these godly men to learn better how to lead with hope. And so the Apostle Paul says, I am going to be humble. And he also says here, if you take a look at verse 12, uh, as we look here, that he is going to be one who has a desire to persuade men. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, how do we persuade men? I don't think it's by twisting people's arms behind their back. You've got to believe in Jesus. I believe it. we persuade men by the way we live. By the love and the joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control with which we carry ourselves. And how does that come? It comes by the Spirit. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And so when I rise in the morning, my goal is to humble myself before God and to ask for His Holy Spirit, Luke eleven thirteen. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? And so as we ask, we receive, and then the questions come as the fruit is shown. We persuade with life and lips. We give reason for the hope that is within us. We give reason for it when people ask. May God bless you. And may God bless you, second, to be constrained by the love of Christ. Now, the back axle of the car is the love of Christ, the love which assures us always that even when we are in the presence of a holy God, when we are directing our heart in the right direction toward God, toward the true and living God as revealed in the Bible, standing in there in his presence, he receives us in love. It's on the basis of God's love for his people as revealed in the gospel that Christ's heart for sinful and suffering saints is revealed. 
Is anybody here today sinful and aware of that? Is anybody here today suffering? God has a heart for you. Christ says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What compels us, verse 14, it's the love of Christ that compels us. The word compel is also translated constrain. In Greek, it's soon echo. Echo means to hold. Soon means together. Just like in synthesis, you put things together in a chemical lab. Soon echo is he holds us together in his love. God holds us together in his love. He keeps us integrated. He keeps us from not collapsing, but he constrains us toward the mission that he has for us in his love. The word literally means that we are preoccupied with the glory of God's name. We are serving God because his love doesn't leave us any more options. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, there is a a life lived to the glory of God because he recognizes that Christ loved him. That the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. There's a connection between Christ's death and mine. I am crucified with Christ, which means that's my identity statement as a believer. I am crucified with him. When somebody doubts whether I'm a believer, when somebody doubts whether I have the right to go to heaven and call myself a Christian, my simple reply is, I am crucified with Christ. I am a believer in his name. When we believe upon Jesus, we have union with him, that the effects of his death flow into us, and that our life is defined by that relationship. So when I wake up in the morning, back to my mornings, and what about yours? Would you say something like this? Lord, I humble myself before your great and glorious presence. You are God. I am not. I am prepared to come into your presence at the last day for the final judgment only because I am crucified with Christ. Lord, I receive your loving grace in the embrace of Christ, that love which constrains me to live for you today. A note here on the extent of the atonement. Whom did Jesus die for? It says in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. That first all is related to the second one with that little word then 
in the Greek, as John Murray points out, it is the uh, Greek word ara, which is more of a therefore than a then. There is a logical connection between if one died for all, therefore is the correct translation. There's also an interesting feature in that in the Greek language, there is a little definite article, hoi, the, before that second all. That if one died for all, therefore the all, the all, the ones that I was referring to earlier in the sentence, that's what you say when you're talking about something already mentioned. The all died. Now what we need to realize here is that this connection is established to say that the ones that he died for are the same ones who are the all who died with him along the lines of Galatians 2.20. The all at the last part of verse 14 is the same all as in the middle of verse 14. Who is this group who died precisely because Christ died for them? It can't be sinners in general because sinners in general died because of Adam's sin and their sin personally. They didn't die in their sins because Christ died at the cross. They died in their sins because of their guilt in the presence of a holy God. Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the all here is an all referring to the all who died because Jesus died. And that is believers. That is God's chosen. Those are those who God has sent his spirit upon that they would believe. And as we go on into the third point, it's those who then go on to live for him, who died for them and rose again. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And this is supported by verses such as Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So this is called definite atonement. It's part of the pattern of sound words which we hold in this church as part of the PCA. And so Christ, having died for us as believers, sets us free. He sets us free from living life in an inhibited, buttoned up, I gotta watch my step and how generous I am with God's love, or I could offend somebody, sort of way. You see what it does? Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. In other words, there's gonna be things in our life that we do that just don't make sense from a human point of view. God has loved us extravagantly, and so we love him back extravagantly. We become generous to a fault. We become expressive of emotion, kind beyond bounds. Not exactly the reserved, boring, button-up Christians that this world expects to meet on a Monday morning. They think of us as only being self-righteous. People are trying to take other people's rights away. But we show ourselves through love. Go ahead, make your neighbor scratch his head. Make her wonder 
Why is that Christian beside herself? And if she's asking that question, then the day may come when you get to provide the answer. The love of Christ compels us. Not only that, we are motivated to have a sound mind, verse 13. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So we need to study the word, to be of a sound mind in Christ so that we are ready to minister in the body of Christ, to understand the Bible deeply so it can provide revealed resources for hurting times, for hurting people. One of those resources I just heard during the Sunday school hour, I want to share this with you, that God wants us to read his providence off of his love, not to read his love off of his providence in our lives. We read his love off of the cross. That is where we know his love. And sometimes when bad things happen to us, when we are at our wit's end, we say, how could this bad thing be happening and you still love us? That providence is meant to be read off of the love of God revealed in space and time at the cross rather than vice versa. Oh, I wonder if he loves me. I wonder how things are going in my life recently. We are meant to know the love of God because of what he has done for us and trust that his providence will come through for us in the end as a provision of his Christ-like character in our life. As we change, as we ride on that back axle, we're the people who want to have a sound mind that we share truth with others that helps them. And I can't imagine a better way for the women of this church to be discipled in the basics of the Christian faith and some of the advanced topics too than the women's retreat, which is coming up on the 15th. I want to urge you to come as a sister who has lived her whole life in God's word and learned much through that word and her walk of experience will share with you. I encourage you that the sound mind talked about here in verse 13 can be yours to a greater extent as you devote yourself to learn. And finally, the th third and final point, we are changed to live for Christ by the death and resurrection of Christ. You see, that's the engine. That's the facts of the matter that allows both the justice of God and the love of God to be revealed at the cross of God's Son. That we can face the final judgment with hope. And we can live our life now in an awareness of his love because the death and the resurrection of Christ are powering the engine of this car of faith. The atoning death of Jesus was necessary for our debt to be paid in full. And that death proved the love of God. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that resurrection after his death is the resurrection which justifies us and lifts us out of our own despair and our own guilt 
and not being able to face God. It was in, God's righteousness is imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Romans 4, 24 and 25. This is the motor that drives us forward to heaven. Never our own works, for there's no merit in the works of the law. As I was reading devotionally this weekend, I was led to a passage in Micah chapter 6. And here we see an example of the objective work of God. It's like an engine for the Old Testament people. It's what they always look back at to prove God's love and how that is meant to motivate them to live for God. In Micah 6, verses 1 to 4, hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Israel have been complaining to God. He said, hey, hold the phone. I got a complaint with you. This is what he says. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. When we wonder about God and we wonder about why things are happening, we need to consider the fact that he has acted in space and time. For the Old Testament people, it was the bringing of Israel out of slavery. And for all of God's people, it is the bringing of Jesus out of the tomb. These are parallel acts of salvation history, the one pointing to the other in fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the message. This is the objective fact that leads before our feelings. It's the fact that brings us to faith. And you have prophets who are telling you these things. It says here, I've sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Here are some people who are going to lead you. Here are some people who are going to take you forward and to teach you of what I have revealed in the Bible. Last week, Jen talked about how she heard a sermon at King's Chapel from Pastor Lou and how he explained Leviticus and how it was filled in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't have to be a stumbling block to faith like somebody tried to throw a stumbling block to her in college. And then she spoke of Hebrews 9 and 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And I'm not sure of the exact verses, Jen, but something along this line. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down the right hand of God. You see, God has given you a pastor to preach to you. God has given you women in 3G Lighthouse, the, the wives of this church, the single women of this church, godly examples for all the women here. God has given you men to walk before you in leadership. Today was a tough day. Okay, I get it. This was a tough day to hear from your session the way you heard it. 
I can feel it. Okay? I can feel it. But, but God has given you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. God has given you three unprofitable servants. Elder Ralph, Elder Ken, and me. This is our best go at it right now, okay? And I'm not saying this is a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of our life together, all right? And I want to encourage you, humbly, to hear what we said before the service. By the way, this wasn't in the sermon notes, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, hear us pray about it, okay? And would you also do the most important thing, which is what Micah goes on to say in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. This is the living for Jesus part, remember? This is everything that God did, and now we got the living for God part. What did God do in the Old Testament? He brought Israel out of Egypt, and now how are we supposed to live? Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Live for Jesus today. Live for God. Humble yourself. Be motivated in the rich way the Bible brings out to you. And be constrained by the love of Christ to show the love of Christ to those around you. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we need you as a church. We need you as individuals. I need you as a pastor every morning I wake up to live for you again. Humble me. Make me a servant shaped by the fruit of the Spirit. Send your Spirit upon each of us, Lord, that the Spirit given may be the Spirit that brings such beautiful fruit that we shall weather any storm and come out with people asking the question, how do they live like that? Oh, Lord, teach us. We love you. In Jesus' name.